Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. As you all know, I am Jennifer Bulbrook with I Am Somebody and my co-host Isabel Bradburn Jackson with Dear Divine Goddess. We're putting together this docuseries called Lost Souls Initiative, where we're taking people's stories and sharing them with the world, spreading awareness and hoping for change. Today, please welcome Ashley. And uh, Ashley, we have Ashley here today, and I don't know a whole lot about Ashley. I know she is a mom and that she um, is a police officer um, up until four officer. years ago. Um, and now she takes care of her beautiful babies. Um, and I know that she was just in the middle of telling us a story that I think is a perfect intro to this um conversation so if you just want to start with that ashley yeah so what i was saying is because isabel was just talking about how you know the police ha did their part for the problems that they were facing with her brother and i was saying about how i recall several situations when i was a police officer and all you know our hour the police uh as far as they can go is somebody has to be uh a harm to themselves or a harm to somebody else for them to be able to apprehend them under the mental health act and take them into the hospital so that they can be seen by a psychiatrist so there were many times that we would apprehend somebody take them into hospital and we're sitting in there with them for 10 12 14 hours waiting for them to be assessed so there were times where the nurse in the ward different nurses would go in and talk to them and you know the person would say I don't want to be here I don't want to be here and you'd hear them say if you tell the doctor you're not going to kill yourself they will let you go so the doctor would eventually come in and talk to them and what would they say I'm not going to kill myself and then we two police officers would have been sitting in the hospital for 10 hours with this person who you know maybe was standing on a balcony ready to jump or the edge of a building or the edge of the devil's punch bowl, whatever it is, all these different places happened so many times. And then they would say, nope, they're fine. They're going to go. And they wouldn't even keep them for the 72 hours because all they had to say was that they weren't suicidal. Doesn't matter what we saw. Doesn't matter what the family told us. If that person said they were not suicidal, they got to walk out of the hospital. That blows my mind I can't even understand it it actually brings me to a story that um I was reading the other day about a woman in Alberta she went into the hospital for suicidal ideation and wanted help because she was going to kill herself and the nurse there asked her if she had ever thought about me yeah which oh, is medical I, assistant I, I, dying yeah. I read that article the other day, which is crazy. It's insane. I, just, I think that they're going to this, like, I I think that the system is so overwhelmed that they don't, they, they even, like, in the hospitals, they don't have the resources that they need to be able to deal with it. So they're like, well, how do we deal with it? We either get them to go back home or we get them to kill themselves. Either way, they're not in our hospital. They're not a burden at the time. Which is insane to me because that's where you go for your, your health, the hospital. Yeah. Like, I don't understand it. Like, my brother was brought in by police after being tased for a suicide attempt. And he he hadn't even seen a psychiatrist before he was released. Yeah. 
they made him speak to a drug counselor. Yeah, which isn't going to help. There's been people, I, it wasn't mine, but I remember there was somebody, I want to say it was a female, who apprehended by police, taken to hospital, released by the hospital, left and jumped off a building and killed herself within an hour. Jennifer is there any liability? Yeah, is there a liability on the hospital? Nope. The hospital never has liability, right? Yeah, I know. I know I'm actually going through that right now because... Um, my brother was formed by the first physician who saw him. And then somebody came in, shift change, and released him. Mm -hmm. 47 minutes later, he was dead. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and it's tough because a lot of the burden, you know, I can, maybe I'm a little bit biased because of my past as a police officer, but a lot of the burden gets put on the police. And police are not psychiatrists, right? We're, we're not people who are trained in drug addictions, like as far as like serious in-depth training, right? It's not, you. police were not meant to deal with this kind of thing. Police are meant to deal with crime, yeah. right? So, but now so much of that is being put on the police. And I just think that, it's not, it's not the place for it to be. It needs to be trained professionals, mental health professionals, doctors, right? It's not, it, it shouldn't be so much put on the police. And I think that it's really, the system is really failing so many people all around because Absolutely, of that. Absolutely. Because from what I see, the police are doing their job and it's, it's really not their job to be picking these people up off the street and making sure they get to the hospital, but they are doing it. And I know because they did it three times in a week with my brother, mm -hmm. you know, we'd had to make a wellness check. And then there was another time he had been picked up. Like they did their job, but when it comes down to it and things go wrong, the first thing people want to do is blame the police. Well, it's not their job to take care of them after they have been brought to the hospital. Whatever, whatever happens from there is on the hospital, not the police. Yeah. And, you know, like you're, they're hating on the police right now because the police are breaking down encampments and this and that, da, 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 whatever, whatever. But like, that is what they're being made to do. That's, that's what they're being told to do. They have to do their job, right? Yeah. But yeah, we have they to can't find... just stand there and say, I'm not going to do it because now what? Now you're defying an order given by who? Who's the order coming from? Right? If the service, the chief is being told that it might be coming from the mayor, it might be coming from the province, right? You can't now turn around and defy that order and say, I'm not going to do it. Then you get charged under the Police Services Act and the officer next to you does it anyways, right? Exactly. Because you've been given that order to do that. It, absolutely. And it's like, we can't, there, we, ha we have to come up with a different solution because I think policing the problem is no longer working because mm -hmm. there's no other support out there. So, okay, the police are doing their job and they're policing the problem, but then what else? What, what else? So what do they do? They move from one spot where the police have kicked them out to another spot and they're just playing, you know, musical chairs yeah and we're yep. wasting taxpayers dollars by having these officers 
police all of these encampments all the time where they're just moving around and playing like you know yeah. cat and mouse yeah and there's nowhere there's no housing there's no shelters there's no nothing no. for them to go to like i'm sure if you ask them do you want to be living in a tent in january when it's going to be minus 40 or would you rather a warm place and a solid roof over your head, I think they're all going to go with option two. Absolutely. Like, where do we, where do we put them? And where is the liability? Who's, you know, who's responsible for this? It's not the police. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a really hard part for me in policing. And I became a police officer on a whim. Like I wanted to be a teacher. I, I think maybe I'm too optimistic of a person to be a police officer. Um, I genuinely believe there's good in everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, if I dealt with somebody who'd been arrested 15 times, I still talk to them like they were a human being because they are. And that's how the majority of officers deal with people. But the hard thing is, I remember one year I arrested the same person five times, right? And drug addiction and every time just in out back on the street and the problem is is that our system is broken because you know now people are saying oh we'll ticket the people in the encampment why what's ticketing somebody who's homeless who doesn't have doesn't money have to money. pay that ticket what is that going to do so our problem is is that we we think that the solution to everything is ticketing or arresting well that's not actually the solution because if somebody is robbing a bank, why are they robbing that bank? Because they have a fentanyl addiction. Why do they have a fentanyl addiction? Because they were sexually assaulted when they were a child, exactly. right? Something like that. So let's go back and address the, the original trauma. cause of the drug addiction so that we can deal with that. Then we can get them off of the drugs. Then we can stop them from committing crimes. They don't want to be robbing banks to try to get $200 to get their next high, right? But that they can't see another way out. So the problem is, is that the system is so broken all around because we're not getting to the core of the problem, especially when it comes to people who are lifelong criminals. You're just taking them and throwing them into a jail with a bunch of other criminals and essentially saying, like, I hope you guys are going to fix each other because we're not going to fix you right? Like, we're not going to help you. And, you know, there's not, there's nowhere near enough resources to be able to actually address the underlying issues that's causing everything. It's a homelessness. A, a lot of it is caused by drug addiction, mental health issues, right? Absolutely. So let's address those issues. Then we can t tackle the homeless crisis, right? Because, if you're not getting them the help, it doesn't matter that you're, you know, even if you are going to rehome them somewhere else, it doesn't matter because you're still going to have them all housed with the drugs together and everything. You have to find out the underlying issues Absolutely. and try to address those. I agree. And I've been told before, if you want to learn how to be a criminal, go to jail. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, you're not helping them by throwing them in a jail cell. Yeah, You're yeah. really criminalizing their minds because they're going in there to learn things that they didn't know before they went in there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and it's sad because 
this is all they know, right? So it's like somebody who has been starving and hasn't eaten in a week and they go into a store and steal a loaf of bread. Like, how do we arrest them for that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, how do we arrest them for trying to survive? Mm -hmm. And I get it. You shouldn't be stealing from a store, loaf of bread, whatever. And I understand it. I don't condone the behavior at all, but I look past it to see like what drove them there. They didn't just steal that loaf of bread because they just wanted to steal a loaf of bread. Like they haven't eaten in a week. Yeah. They're, they're trying to survive. And I just don't think like, I think the police are doing their best, but I don't think policing the problem is working and we need something else. We need a better solution. We need more supports. We need more resources. And that's where I believe that the federal and the provincial government both need to step in instead of all these cutbacks. Like we should be figuring out how do we, you know, um, create, more detox centers and more rehabs and you know put more money into mental health because that is exactly it all of these people who are having mental health crisis or drug addiction are from trauma and most of them is childhood trauma so you're not dealing with the core issue so the mental health is exasperating the drug addiction. The drug addiction is exasperating the mental health and it's a vicious circle and it doesn't stop. Yeah, it's exactly true. Because and we don't have the resources. The core. And, yeah, and when the pandemic hit, we saw even fewer resources. We saw, okay, now all of a sudden we're going to cancel your AA and your NA and you know shelters were closing down like you know limiting the capacity and that's where a lot of this all started right is then they were really putting people out on the streets and they couldn't even go for the to the resources that some of them had so you had so many people who then got over their you know were were getting better from their addictions and we took away their counseling and their support services and we're like hey good luck hope you can figure it out on your own (sighs) Right? COVID and was brutal because of, they yeah. didn't even have a Tim Hortons to go and use the washroom and do a bird bath. Yeah. They had nowhere to even clean themselves or to use a washroom because nobody was allowed in. It was COVID. Everything was yeah. locked down. Yeah. So resources, what do we expect for these people? Yeah. The resources should have expanded tenfold after COVID. And Absolutely. I don't think that they've increased at all. Right. They have, you I had, think they decreased. Yeah. 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 It's insanity. It blows my mind. Because, yeah. Mm-hmm. It does, right, Jen? Like it's it's horrible to even think about it. Like when you really sit there and think, okay, I get it. COVID, the lockdowns, trying to protect everybody. I understand it. But for two years essentially. Where were these people using the washroom? Where were they cleaning themselves? Where were they, you know, having a shower or a bird bath? Did anybody care? No. Winter came, spring came, summer came, fall came. These these people are in extreme weathers. Eight months out of the year. 
between summer and winter. Mm-hmm. And they're living in this. And I'm, I, I would not want that to be my child. So it's like, how do we let our people, our people, our community, these are our people. They're Hamiltonians, they're Canadians. How do we let this happen? I have never seen so much homelessness in Hamilton as I have in the last four years. It's like they're spilling at the seams. There's nowhere to house them and they're everywhere. Everywhere I turn, there's an encampment, whether it's one tent or two, they're there. Yep. And it's I so agree. I've sad never because, seen it either. Yeah, these are human beings. Every one of these people are somebody and they are somebody to someone. A lot of their families are looking for them and don't even know if they are alive. Mm -hmm. How is that okay? You know, like, I just don't understand it. I don't understand how the government sees it and doesn't think that it's worthy of creating a solution for. And I get it. I know it doesn't happen overnight. We can't turn a ship around, you know, in an instant. But at least start putting things in place so we can. So that we can support them. You know, if it wasn't for organizations or people that, like me and Jen, who really wear our heart on our sleeve and want to take things to these people and drop off Tim Hortons cards and take used clothing and used shoes and show up with cases of water or pizza or snacks or whatever. How do these people eat? And then we wonder why crime rate has gone up. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to survive. They're not getting their basic needs met. It's all a ripple effect, right? Like whether you become homeless because of drugs or if you become homeless because of something else, because of like rent has gone up, but then now you're on the street and now you've been, you know, now your mental health's going and now you have, you know, all this access to drugs. So now you have an addiction, like, and it just, and whatever way you started, it's you somehow managed to get through all of the stages because it's like a ripple effect, no matter how you go. perpetuates the next yeah and it's you know and i don't think it's all of like up to the police to um fix it or anything i think we all need to do it as a community i think a part of it needs to obviously start on the ground on the streets because that's where it's happening and you know police are the ones that are to protect us and that so i think the police need to be involved in that but i also think that they do need to have the training to do that. And I don't think that they do. And I think that there needs to be somebody else on the ground with them who has the experience with them and who's there for just the mental health aspect of it all. And that because um, people don't always approach or respond to the police as they would a doctor or a civilian or whoever on the street yeah so hamilton was actually the first service in canada may have even been in north america to pair a mental health worker with a police officer um and that started before i left 
So I left four years ago. I want to say it started maybe around six years ago. And that was at that point, I don't know if it's changed the name at all. Now it's the mobile crisis rapid response team. And they work together all the time, right? Like they only work their shifts together, 12 hour shifts, daytime, nighttime, doesn't matter. They're always there. So if a call comes in for somebody who is in crisis, they're the first one to go. Because again, like the police, they don't have the resources to connect the people with afterwards, right? Whereas the mental health nurse does. But the mental health nurse, you can't have, you know, I, I'm sorry to say it, but you can't have a five foot four, 150 pound woman going in to deal with a 250 pound man who is in crisis on her own. Right. Like it's just it's a completely unsafe environment to put that person in. So this way you're having somebody who can help to protect the mental health nurse, but we're also still able to provide the resources. Right. So I actually think that it's been a really, really successful program in Hamilton, but the program's not big enough. And Hamilton is such a hub for mental health issues that the program needs to be bigger. But again, that comes with funding from the government and the funding is just not coming in. Yeah, that's actually who brought my brother into the hospital, like the MCERT team, right? Yeah. Um, And that's great. Like I have no complaints at all whatsoever. Like they did their job. They went above and beyond even after my brother's death to come and visit my mother and I not once, but twice to see how we were. I got an email about a month and a half ago from the detective on the case, just checking in to see how me and my mother were that they don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they dealt with the situation that day. They put in their paperwork and their job was done, but they went yep. above and beyond because they saw like you know how really messed up the case was so I have no complaints but it's like we can't drop the ball in the police policing's lap and then expect them to just deal with all of the problems it's not going to work like they're overrun too they're overwhelmed as well like our mayor just um announced a state of emergency for opiate addiction mental health and homelessness in Hamilton we can't drop that all on the police no no because the police are not the ones who created that crisis right like police are not creating the homelessness crisis exactly um you know so I just think that yeah there needs to be other resources that are put there and you know, like all all the training that police get to deal with mental health, like at the end of the day, they're not psychiatrists and you can't expect them to be because they haven't gone to school to be psychiatrists. So, you know, you can, police are taught how to deal with somebody when they're in crisis, right? So how to deal with it in a way that keeps them safe and you safe, right? And, you know, but there's so much more obviously out there, but it's just, there's, there's not enough resources to train the police to the extent that they could be trained in order to have all the knowledge possible to help everybody, right. Who is in, who is in a mental health crisis. There needs to be more mental health workers on the street, whether they're with police 
or in groups or whatever that is, there needs to be more of them to be able to go out there and try to address the issue. Well, Jennifer and we're, Bonner we're taking money out of our healthcare system as opposed to putting more money into our healthcare system. Absolutely. What what is if you can talk about it, what is like the protocol right now if like you go to a call and it turns out somebody is in a mental health crisis or something like that? Like what would typically happen from there if the police showed up first? I can only tell you what would have happened when I last was a police officer because I'm sure so much have changed. I have not policed since COVID hit, right? Like it was, it's been four years since I had my last day. Um, so I can tell you from having gone to calls, you know, we receive the call and whatever information is passed on to the dispatcher. And sometimes there's no information provided to the dispatcher, right? We, the police going to the call, they can only go based on the information that they're given. So, you know, a lot of times you don't have any information. You have that, you know, so-and-so is suicidal and we need police. Right. So you go and it's just trying to assess the situation as quickly as you can. And sometimes you have 10 seconds to assess the situation. Sometimes you have two seconds or one second. Right. So every single one is different. But the goal, obviously, is to get there to assess the situation and to make sure that it's calm so that you can figure out what's going on. Have a discussion with family because the family is going to give you more information than the person who's in crisis, right? The family might say, no, they had a knife to their throat 10 minutes before you got here and they said they were going to kill themselves. Whereas the person is saying, no, no, I'm totally fine. So they're going to get all of the information and they're going to take all of that information and decide, you know what, I do think that they're going to harm themselves or harm somebody else. We need to take them to the hospital so that they can be seen by somebody who can hopefully get them the help that they need, form them, keep them in for 72 hours, right? And that kind of stuff. When you go to the hospital and you do have an incident where the nurse tells them, you know, just tell them that you don't want to, you know, kill yourself or that somehow that ended up happening where the doctor just kind of lets them go that same time or whatever. Are you there when they let them go? Like, are you able to say like, no, like you like they need to stay? Is there anyone there to advocate or to speak for this person who? is you know even if they're saying like no i'm good now anyone there to dispute that no because a lot of times what happens is police when i did it they have to stay at the hospital as long as the hospital deems the police to be necessary so if they think the person might harm them right or you know sometimes security would come in and take over but sometimes they would say you know what they're fine you can go other times if the person was more violent right then then police would have to stay but you know again like police always conveyed all of the information so hey i went there and they were standing on the ledge of a building and it took us 15 hours to talk them off of that ledge with various people involved and now we're here and even with all that information they'll still let them go i think too though is it And I think that, yeah, like, I don't think you should be made to stay or whatever, but it's like, it's also like kind of a thing of telephone where like you've told the like one person that you're talking to, that person's telling the next nurse, the next, and then if there's a shift change, oh God. And then, then finally the doctor's hearing the news. And by then it's like, 
what all the information is really being relayed. And I know they're supposed to write it all down and it's all in their chart, but like we have to really rely on everybody reading the charts and all that kind of stuff too. Do you have any idea how or any opinion on how we could kind of make that transition a one a little bit more smoother where I don't know, we don't go through down so many different lines of like communication or like there's like, I don't know, some special tab that you need to press and open before like looking at a file. Like, I don't know. Do you have any idea on how we can like make the transition of communicating the patient's severity that they're in better? So again, I don't know what changed in the last, you know, handful of years. We did also fill out paperwork, and on that paperwork, we would tell, you know, the information that we had. But the problem is, is that sometimes it could be 12 hours before a doctor could come in and see them. And, like, to take two police off the street to just sit there in a waiting room possibly for 12 hours to relay the story, right, it's, it's not practical because, you know, there's only so many police officers on the street at any given time um so I don't know what's changed now but again I know that you know we used to write down all the details and that would then go on to the doctor to be able to read it right from this is the information that I know I'm putting it on paper that paper then goes to the doctor for them to read so I don't know if it's become more in depth than that but I know that that was at least there so the doctor does get to see you know firsthand what the police officer who is involved wrote i think it's just crazy that they make people wait and it was the same with me when i every time i had gone into um the hospital for like a suicide attempt or self-harm or whatever the case may be um it was like you wait sometimes for like 12 hours you're mm-hmm. right and by 12 hours it's like i just want to get the hell out of here they don't yeah. care anyway they're making yeah. me a wait like obviously it's not that big of a deal if mm-hmm. they don't care and so it's and and I know it's people are going to say, well, you know, there's a, there's lots of patients out there, but how many psychiatrists are can are hired by the, the hospital and where one can't come down and deal with, you know, it's just it makes me wonder why a emergency room doesn't really have a psychiatrist who is more accessible to them where the patient doesn't have to wait 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, St. Joseph's does have emergency psych. So they have emergency psych, which is uh, right on the same floor as uh, the eMERGE, which is right across the hall from the eMERGE. I've been there. You still wait 12 hours. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but I think... That's what I'm talking about, because that's where we... That's where police would take them, right? Is into the emergency ward, and that's where you wait to be seen, and that's where it could be, you know... I can... I don't even think that there was one time that I was in that room for less than five hours right like a lot of it was always a very long wait and a lot of those times you know even like the five hour time it's okay you can go I don't know how much longer they waited to see a doctor at that point yeah and it's that's and that kind of goes yeah it kind of goes with the whole thing like it's not an emergency to them because the person's not already taken the medication or slit their wrist or whatever the case may be. So it's not an emergency to them. So 
they can wait, but what's going to happen in the time frame? Like they're they are having they're suffering. They are struggling at that time, and they're there for help. And we're just letting them wait. And if they would have come in already taken the meds or whatever, the psychiatrist would have been down there already. And that's where I'm like, why are we waiting? Like, why are we keeping people waiting? Like that to me is the neglect on our mental health system that nobody really is addressing. Yeah, it's a complete lack, again, lack of resources. Like they don't have enough people in there to be able to deal with it. Like they know that the mental health problem in this country is far bigger than it was five years ago. Have they increased the number of staff to be able to meet that level? No, no, again, not at all. Like they're decreasing staff, they're decreasing funding, right? So it's just the matter of there physically are not the people in the building to deal with those issues. And it's really what's the training to- like? Yeah. It's insane for me to hear you say, like, you can say that, like, in your experience, there you have not been there for less than five hours because my brother was brought in by police after being tased, which means, like, he was actively trying to harm himself and being aggressive with the police officers. Five hours in and out from suicidal to the point where police had to tase you to you're absolutely fine you're no more law you're no longer suicidal and you're not intoxicated go home mm-hmm. in five hours yep that's all crisis and where is the responsibility on that doctor right. who lets them go right so that they can then go jump off of a building right like where's the but the problem is is there's no responsibility on them so they don't have to carry the weight of that decision right whereas like you know when I was a police officer if I ever stopped somebody for impaired driving and you know can't tell you how many times oh please just follow me home please 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 you know if I did that and I followed them home and the next night they killed somebody that's on me. First of all, that's on me. Personally, I would never be able to live with myself. But second of all, professionally, that would come down on me. Huge. I would have had charges under the police services act, like crazy, like all of these different things. But it just seems like there's no responsibility that falls on to the healthcare system when they just, it's a revolving door, right? And we're just trying to get people in and get them back out as quick as possible to empty out the emergency room as opposed to let's get them in let's address the issue so that they don't have to come back 52 more times the last time my brother was brought in by the police was his third attempt in a week we had already saved his life because he you know intentionally overdosed on fentanyl We had to give him Narcan, send him in. There was another time when he stole my mother's car and smashed the shit out of it. Like, I don't even know how he drove it back to my mom's house. And I said, where was the accident? Because my heart went right into my stomach because I'm thinking, oh, my God, did he hurt somebody? Did he kill somebody? Like, when you see a car that messed up, 
you automatically think like, what else? Right. Yeah. Um, and he said it wasn't an accident. And I'm like, what do you mean? It wasn't an accident. He's like, you know what I mean? Cause he didn't want to live. He was trying to kill himself. So, of course, I called the police to make sure that there was no reports of an accident. There was nobody gone to hospital because, like, I couldn't sleep that night because I'm thinking, mm -hmm. what did my brother do? Like, who did he hurt? You know, because he was in psychosis. He was having a mental health crisis. And all three suicide attempts, he was gone to the same hospital. And then you released him five, after, five hours after being brought in by police. This is our system. Mm -hmm. I My brother's story is one of thousands. He is not the only one. He's not the first and he won't be the last. And, and that's, that's the saddest okay. part of it. Yeah, that's the saddest part of it, right? Is that he's not the first and he won't be the last. Because it's going to keep happening until they address the issue and put the resources into the system exactly. that are needed. And it's like... Something has to be done because everything is increasing. Like since COVID, even child abuse has increased. If you look at the numbers, domestic violence has increased. Like it's all skyrocketed. People like people are not okay. Yeah. Well, they then need you took like you took kids, you took kids who maybe lived in an abusive home whose yeah. only out was going to school every school. day, and now you said. You don't get to go to school. Now, essentially, you're trapped in this jail of your home every day with your abuser. Same thing in domestic violence, right? Oh, you can't come into the workplace anymore, right, where you needed to make a paycheck so that your partner could take every single penny that you earned away from you, mm -hmm. right? And your only escape from your partner was to go and work at Tim Hortons every single day, right? And then you weren't even allowed to go and do that anymore. I know. And it's like, there's the problems. Where are the solutions? They're not even attempting to come up with the solutions. But I was watching one of their little things they do at the parliament, but they're fighting for money to move the science center from where it is to the exhibition stadium area. Build a new building, tear down all those exhibits, bring them all over because they're super sensitive, pay to have them installed, and then get rid of the old building. But you cannot put money into our healthcare system for mental health and addictions yep. when people are dying daily. Because it doesn't give they them the every money. Every 11 minutes, yeah. someone is dying of fentanyl poisoning in Canada and the United States. That is six people an hour. That is six families an hour that are being destroyed, that are being traumatized. And it's just going to continue to perpetuate the problem, the problem of mental health, the problem of addiction, because people who are having issues, pain, emotional pain, are self-medicating through drugs because they're not getting the help they need from the doctors, the psychiatrists, the counselors, the therapists. Yeah. So the problem is just continuously getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And nobody is coming in with the white flag to say, hey, this is what we're going to do about it. But let's move the freaking science center because, hey. What's a few million dollars? 
Like, where are our priorities? And immigration, like, I have nothing against refugees and being a savior, you know, for people like that. But my problem is we have people living on the streets here already. How are we supposed to house the people that are coming in from other countries when we can't even house our own people? We can't even How does that work? They're bringing them in and they're living on the streets now too, right? And it's like they're not like we are in such a housing crisis that is going to continue to get worse over the next couple of years. I think we're already short over half a million homes. Um, and, you know, we brought in, what, a million immigrants, I want to say, which is the most yeah. ever in a year in Canada. And, and they say most of them are coming to Ontario. To live. Yeah, and they have, and yeah, they're all coming to, you know, Toronto, right? And they have nowhere to live. We already have thousands of people who don't have anywhere to live, so we're going to bring in another million, Yeah. right? And bring them in, and then what? Like we're not, we're, we're not providing anything. Does that make sense though? Like, I don't understand where the government sees that, that it was like, that's okay. Like, how does that make sense? We can't even house our own people. And I'm not against helping other countries, helping refugees. Like I'm not against it at all. I believe, you know, in helping where we can, you know, get in where we fit in. Right. But like, help our people first like mm-hmm. you can't bring I, more and add it on plenty like mm-hmm. we have nowhere we for need these to be, people to go we need to be doing it in the right way though too because like what we do is like we bring in these immigrants and you might be a doctor back home but guess what we're only going to let you drive a taxi here well you know what why can't we create a standardized test that says when you come to canada if you're a doctor back home you can write this test. We're not asking yep. you to go back to school. You write this test. If you pass this test, you're now a doctor in Canada. Let's let them use the skills that they have at home here. Exactly. Because you're getting a lot of highly skilled people coming into our country who want to work, right? Who want to be able to contribute to the economy and have homes and have good lives and raise their kids and that kind of stuff. But, but we're not giving they them that because... Here. We're not, we're not allowing them to do their job yeah. that they're trained to do. So they're just wasting the skills that they have. And we need those skills. We yeah. need those skills. But we're just like, well, we don't have any way to figure that out. We don't have a way to, to we don't have this standardized test. Yeah. So forget the, you know, doctor school that you went to. Forget that you're a nurse. Forget that you're a vet, right? Because you're not allowed to do that here because you didn't do it in our country, which I think is ridiculous. I have two friends that I worked with when I was a PSW and they are both from the Philippines and she was a massage therapist and he was a PT. They can't do that job here unless they go back to school for it Mm -hmm. because they weren't trained here. Which is not fair. Who says that our system is the They both went into PSW work. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't understand it. Our government needs a rehaul. Like, it needs to be, you know, where they were saying, um, what were they saying about the police to uh, de... Oh, defund the police. 
defund the police. We need to defund the government. (laughs) Break them down. (laughs) Build it back up from the ground up, right? Yeah, stop them from being able to give themselves raises. Like, imagine if you went to work and you're like, ah, I feel like I deserve to make $10 more an hour. Okay, let's make it happen. Nobody else gets to decide on their own raises. Why does the government get to decide on their own raises? Like, to me, that's crazy. Like, until you fix these problems, there should be no raises. Until we don't have homeless encampments at every single park with a splash pad in the city, you don't get a raise. Because you're not doing your job. No. And the sad reality is, like, it's hard for me when I have these conversations with friends and family because they're like, they, they need to get out of the parks. Like our kids can't even go to the parks. There's needles, there's this, there's that. And I get it because, you know, with these encampments, because like there's drug addicts, there's mental health, all of it. And I get it. But my defense always is they go to these parks because a lot of them have bathrooms. Yeah. They want to be close to wash. So they can yep. clean up, and they can use the washroom, they could do what I got to do. Yeah, and the splash pads, because again, they use it to be able to clean, clean, right? Yep. And I get it. Like, I feel bad for the kids, but I also feel bad for these adults who are living day in and day out in a tent. Like, we go camping in the summertime. Woohoo, let's go camping. It's fun. It's fun to do it for a weekend or a week. Mm-hmm. But I don't see anybody doing it, like, for a lifetime. Some of these people have been out there for 10 years, yeah. 11 years. We have people dying, freezing to death in the winter. Canada winters are brutal. Yeah. Freezing to death. That is somebody's mother or father or brother or child. Like, we cannot keep allowing this to happen. Like it's, there's no way it's insanity to me. Yeah. These are human beings and there's so much stigma around it. It's so easy to like walk by them and scoff and be like, Oh, get a job, go to detox. But you don't know their story. Yeah. Cause you can't see it. Right. Exactly. Even like a, a, a cancer patient who loses their hair, people will look at them and, you know, have pity or feel bad for them or whatever it might be because they can see that they have cancer and they're going through treatment. But you can't see necessarily that somebody has mental health issues because especially in the beginning, people try to mask those issues as much as they can, right? They hide those issues from their family, their friends, all that kind of stuff. And I think that we just have this weird thought of if you can't see it, then they're okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And when you do finally see it, it's gone too far, right? And now they do have the drug addiction or they are living on the streets because, you know, they were manic for so long and they weren't paying their bills and they lost their house, right? so unfortunate and I don't have all the answers I don't claim to but something needs to be done the government needs to step up and be like okay let's do this you know they work for us we don't work for them yeah they work for us 
And everybody is sitting around waiting for the government to say what they're going to do. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's our job to force them to do what we need them to do because we are the people. They mm -hmm. work for us. They don't get to dictate how and when. We, you know, we get to do that. But we have to stand up and show them, look, like, this isn't what we're, like, this isn't okay. We're not dealing with this anymore. Like, pull it together. We have to be in but, a united front, too. And what the government is really good at is driving a divide, divide. between people. Yeah, right? Because if you are divided, you will not come together yep. for the same cause. Right? Oh, oh so we saw whether, it big time with COVID. Yeah. So again, vaxxers, yes, vaxxers, vaccinated, -vaxxers. unvaccinated, maskers, masking, not masking. Ma yep. Right? Whether whether it's race, religion, you know, yep. your sexual preference, it doesn't matter. They love they to love drawing, driving a divide between people because they know that that is what is going to stop people from yep. rising up to create yep. the change. Yeah, it's the only way they control us is by creating divide. Yeah, and a lot of us are dumb enough to fall for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I don't really think, that, really, and I like, don't think the government can put a divide there unless we let them. So, like, absolutely, to give the government all that power and control is like just. I think that's you know. I think what we need to do is really to sit there and, like you said, you know, take it all, tear it all down. And start from the beginning, the groundwork and rebuild yep. a foundation and relook at things because things aren't how they were back in 1920 or fucking mm -hmm. whatever, or even 1980, even 2000, things have changed. And we need to relook at the foundation of it all. We've been building all, putting all these band-aids over the years and these band-aids are now falling off. Nobody yep. knows what to do with them. And so they're just like patching them up with this like tape and it's just not happening yeah. and it's suffering and it's people suffering in all different aspects. And I don't think there's going to be one solution. I think there's going to be many different solutions because there's many different problems, but like we need to get to the core of it all. And it's going to start with really rebuilding that foundation and that can't happen if the government and the people aren't agreeing that that needs to happen. And I don't think anybody's really even looking at that. People are just like, well, what are we going to do today to fix today's problem? Like right now, like a quick fix, another Band-Aid. And that's what I think the government keeps looking for is a Band-Aid instead of really looking for, okay, you know, whatever. Yep. And the, and the problem is, is that it's, if people don't feel safe, they won't address the issues that they're going through. So if you look at the countries where, you know, they they don't have welfare, they provide housing. So like, we're not going to give you a, a check every single month, but we're going to give you an apartment, right? And they don't have the same kind of issues that we have because, you know, you might be in a mental health crisis, but now you're given a, a home, right? Somewhere where you now feel safe and maybe now you can start to address the other issues because you feel safe. Nobody, even the person who does the most drugs in the encampment, they don't feel safe in there. So they're not going to address their issues in a place where they don't feel safe. They're in fight and flight 24-7, like hours a day. 
mm-hmm. 24-7. They're in that, like, you know, fight or flight, right? I think um, that's not even just including people that are, you know, living out there. It's, I think, includes everybody. Like, if you're, you're a parent and you're going through something and you reach out for help, your like I know for myself one of the first qu- thoughts to my mind is like is CS gonna get involved like am I gonna lose my kids yeah. like and oh, what yeah. are other people gonna think about me and then all of those too and those are serious like relevant concerns because yeah. I have seen CS come in and take kids that don't need to be taken mm-hmm. they've come in and taken kids that do but like it's but I think that as soon as you say there's a mental health issue, then it's like, oh, boom, then boom, 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 boom. Like, we have to look at you in a whole different light. And they do. The court systems do. The workers do. Yeah, they look at us like we're irrational. Yeah. Am I going to lose my kids? Am I going to lose my job? Or do I just not reach out for help? So that at least like, you know, my kids can stand out of my roof and I can keep going to work because, yeah, it's it's a fear of what are you going to lose if you try to get help? Because there's so much initial judgment on everything. That is one of the reasons why I suffered through postpartum depression on my own, because I was terrified to tell my doctor I was having postpartum depression because I didn't want them to take my baby from me. Yeah. And, you know, my postpartum depression had nothing to do with um, harming my son. And like we were bonded. Great. I was breastfeeding. But my mind was something happening to me and him being left alone. Like I would Mm -hmm. be terrified to go do the laundry because I'm like, what if I fall down these stairs right now? And he's in his crib and like I'm laying here dead and nobody knows. Yeah. And you can't stop that from coming. You don't know that that's going to happen. You can have four kids and on your fifth kid, you have postpartum depression, right? Exactly. Like there's no, there's no way to stop that before it happens. And then so people are in that already in crisis or having, you know, bad day after bad day. And they, they are too afraid to reach out for help, but you can't prepare for that. No. You know, and even like, even the, just your hormones after having a child, they're all over the place, right? And it's a big ongoing joke. Oh, she's hormonal. It's mm-hmm. just the hormones. Like, like it's a big joke, but it's really not because like, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. Just the change in hormones, whether you're pregnant or postpartum, like that is a lot for any human being to deal with. And then on top of all of that and your body healing and becoming a new mom with a baby and trying to, you know, find your footing. Now you have postpartum depression, but you can't go for help because you're going to be judged and you're going to be looked at and CAS might take your baby. So what's happening now? These women are not getting help. They're isolating and they're suffering in silence. It's, I don't know. I don't know the answers. I really don't. But um, Jen Bonner and, and us, we had a conversation with her episode. And she was saying, like, we need to promote, promote more healthy communities where we're making communities healthier and safer. Like, especially like... Um, 
you know, the real high risk communities in the areas and like where all the bad boys and the bad kids are. Well, that's because those are the areas with children who have the most trauma. Yeah. Right. Poverty, trauma, single family homes. Like we need to reach out to those areas and really start trying to help these kids before they become adolescents, adults, and have their own kids, and they're just perpetuating generational trauma. Yeah, we need to get them when they're young, so that we can alleviate a lot of these issues. Yeah, but they're not like it's they're just being thrown to the wolves. And it's like, there, pick a struggle. You know, we, we need to take the stigma off of therapy. Absolutely. Right. Like there's you're allowed to there's no problem in you saying I'm going to the doctor because I need amoxicillin right but why is there a problem in saying that you're going to speak to a mental health professional because you're not you're not doing so well right why is there a problem with getting our kids therapists if we're starting to see that you know there's a problem and we don't know how to address it as parents there's yeah. such a huge, huge stigma around therapy, and yeah. I it blows my mind. I I can't understand it. I I don't know why that's a thing that is is a part of our culture. No. Um. Last year, my son was having a really hard time because we've had a really like the last three years has been really tough for my family. We've had a lot of loss, you know, and um the principal had said to me like what about getting him a social worker in school that he could talk to when things get a little harsh, you know, or like overwhelming or whatever for him. And I'm like, do you really think he needs that? Because like, I'm aware and I have open conversations with my son and we do all the work and like, he could talk to me about anything. So I just, I was like, does he really need that on top of like what we're already doing and all the coping strategies I taught him and stuff. And he's like, listen, if your kid needed glasses or if your kid needed a hearing aid, you wouldn't even bat an eyelash, right? To make sure he got those glasses or those hearing aids. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, he's struggling. Your family has been through a lot and it's not your job. It's not your job when you're struggling and you're grieving to be his therapist. Yep. And I think as women, we take on all of those hats because we're mom. We got to make it all better. Like we got to make sure we do everything for our kids, right? So a lot of kids are kind of going, slipping through the cracks. And like, that's even me, somebody who's fully aware of all of it. Like, you know, the work we do, we've been through a lot of things together. And it's like, still, he may have missed out on counseling because I thought what we were doing is good enough. And it's not mm-hmm. sometimes they need that third party. Yep. That's true. Yeah. A lot of people like they just, they won't necessarily open up or they just need somebody who, you know, they, they think that you're saying something because you're a loved one. Yeah. Right. Whereas if if a professional says that to them, then they might take it differently. They might yeah. take it more seriously, right? They might be like, oh, you know, maybe there really is a problem. 
And it's not just that my mom or brother, you know, is telling me that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like in another 10 years for our children, but I certainly hope things change real quick because I'm terrified for them. Mm-hmm. At the increased rate that, that all of this shit is perpetuating, I don't even want my kid to go outside. But I can't isolate him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to let a kid be a kid and learn and experience and grow. But yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. What do I we do? Agree. We're yeah. at a it's a tough spot, right? Because we're at an impasse. I, yeah, I don't know what the I don't know what the solution is. I wish that I did. I wish somebody did. <laughs> right? I know. And I don't think, like Jen said earlier, I don't think it's one solution. And there's not one fix-all. Yeah. There are a lot of things that have to be addressed in order for things to really kind of neutralize. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the police deserve a lot more credit than they're getting. They always yeah. get the shit end of the stick. Like everybody's ready to be like, oh, the police, the cops, the this, you know. But in all reality, like they're dealing with a lot more now than they ever had to because on top of all of the criminal stuff, they're dealing with all of our social problems too. Yeah. And, and you know, there's only so many resources within the police service, right? Yeah. Like you're you're having officers who are working like double the amount of time. So they're doing the, you know, their regular hours in a week. And then they're also working overtime for the same amount of hours that they've just worked because they're so low on police officers and there needs to be so many people on the street. And when you're getting called every single day, can you come in? Can you come in? Can you come in? So they go, they're overworked, right? They're, it's, you know, it's really tough because, it's probably the job where I think you get shit on the most, yeah. you know, you get it at social media, you get it from the media. And I can tell you from doing that job, 99.9% of those police officers are doing it for the right reason, but our system is broken. So when you're working with so your hands are tied, system, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't get seen that way. It's just like, oh, they're just sitting in Tim Hortons drinking their coffee and eating their donuts. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, they're reality, sitting there part of car and catching up. Yeah, because they just did six calls back to back and they yeah. gotta catch up on their notes because if you don't have notes and you get called to court for something, oh, you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, how many calls can you remember in a row before you have to stop and catch up yeah. on your notes or catch up on your reports, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to, like, you know, come up with a solution today. And I don't think we'll oh, come God. up with one tomorrow. But I think that what we need to do is just keep talking about it and keep coming yeah. up with ideas and actually start implementing some of them and not just talking about some of them. Like, I, I remember hearing about these, you know, tiny houses for them, like, 
year and a half, two years ago that are still not there, like for yeah. whatever reason, right? Well, and I don't even know what reason, whatever. But yeah, I think but it, it was a there was a thing. project that was approved already at one mm -hmm. point, and they had a location, and then then that location just didn't it fell through. Well, the community. And, yeah, but the that's the thing. Fuck the community right now. Right. Like, think about it. Like we have we're listening to people who are in their houses tell us that we shouldn't build a tiny home there because they don't want some homeless person to come move in with them. Well, fuck you. Too bad. Like we're a community where we need to start supporting one another and stop judging. My and like, is, like, would you rather them in a tiny home or on the street? Yeah. Like, really think about you it. Can't, you can't see get them out of our parks and then oh well i don't want it their tiny home right there like pick a struggle you can't have it both ways mm -hmm. yeah and we need to start talking to the people who are dealing with the stuff in hand the people who are yeah. living on the streets right now and not just the addicts the ones that are there because of the financial shit and the homelessness because you know, interest rates have gone up. Rents have gone up. There's a lot of people on the street for that reason alone. We don't want to forget yeah. them. And we, we don't want to say like, you know, it's everybody's fault that they're on the street. It's not everybody's fault that they're on mm -hmm. the street. Some yes, some not. But we yep. need to look at everybody, the mental health part, the addiction part, the fucking financial part, all of it. And it all needs to be addressed separately. And then yeah. we should come back together. But right now, I just don't know what they're doing. It's like they're just trying to solve it all in one big sweep, which yeah, is not going to happen, bubble. right? It's just ban that's where the Band-Aid effect keeps coming in. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer. It's been... Um, interesting to kind of hear from your perspective and um really kind of learn of some of the what goes on in the background yeah. um like you know when you go to the hospital and things like that i've you know been able to experience it on my end how i experience it personally and things like that but just to hear it from your perspective and to really let other people know that like um, you know, you guys are just human too. You guys are doing your job and, you know, it's really starts from higher up of where we need to really start to address our solution, our, our concerns with, and not just the people on the ground, but going up higher and that. So I want to thank you first of all for, you know, for when you were policing, um, and that, and I appreciate you coming on here and talking with us. Is there anything you want to maybe end with, um, a note or, um, a message for anybody who's struggling or with the government and how they're dealing with their system or anything? I just want to say like, for somebody who's struggling and, and listening, like, even though you think that you may have taken all the paths or there's nobody out there, you know, there is still help out there. And it, it's tough because, you know, the hardest part is taking that step to go and do it. Um, but you may not see the value in your life, but your life does have value. And whether it just hasn't been found yet, you know, because you, you can't see it, but there's other people out there who see that value. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, if something happens to you, you never get to make that mark on the world that you were put here to make. Cause we were all put here to make a certain mark. And if you can 
find the strength to go get that help, you're going to be able to leave your mark in the world and you might be able to help the next person who needs that help. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ashley. I know you're very busy. You're a mama of two, an entrepreneur, like you're doing your thing, you know, and I'm very proud of you for that. Um, but I know that, you know, you're busy, busy. So I thank you very much for your time with us today. You're, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. It was nice meeting you, Ashley. And for all those listening, you know, if you have an idea, if you have a story, an opinion, please reach out to us. Please share your opinions and your ideas, even if you think they're small, because like I say, it could bounce off somebody else's idea. And then next, you know, we have a great big solution. And it just has to start with one idea. That's it. One idea. That's how the light bulb was vented. That's how everything was invented. One small idea. And if you're struggling, please reach out. We're here for you to help you in any way we can. If you have a story you want to share, please reach out and we will help you share it. To everybody else, to alls, have a good one and we'll see you all next time.